going to look at the fact that a church after God's own heart is a gospel community. A church after God's own heart is a gospel community. And I'm going to look at various passages in the Bible. It's not going to be our typical um, exposition of one passage. I'm going to go through different passages of, of the Bible. A church after God's own heart is gospel. It's, it's a gospel community. Let us uh, bow our heads in prayer and ask the Lord's blessing on his word. Our dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that we can come to you as believers. We thank you, Father, that you are the one who has opened that door for us, O oh Lord, through Jesus Christ, and that we can look to you, Father, to teach us, to comfort us, to encourage us, to strengthen us. Lord, we pray that even as we come together today to look into your word, that you will speak to our lives, O oh Lord. Edify us, Father, as we look at your word. For the sake of your name and your kingdom, we pray all this. And the chest say, Amen. Paul Tripp, in his book, uh, Dangerous Calling, says that Christianity is a community project. Christianity is a community project. What he means by this is that the life of a Christian is not lived in isolation. But God means for Christian to, to be in a community. Christianity can be likened to, to a marathon. And as, as I was thinking about this, I thought about uh, Willem uh, uh, and, and his marathon uh, uh, participations. Christianity can be, can be likened mostly to, to a marathon. It, it is not a 100-meter dash where... You, 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 you finish quickly, you, you run in a few minutes and you are done. But it is a long marathon. And in this marathon, one thing that we must uh, realize is that we are not competing against each other. We are running with each other. That is the difference with this marathon. And as many of you might know, that a marathon is a challenging thing to undertake. As people run there are some who lose strength um, on the way and, and feel like giving up. But with the help of fellow runners who, who come alongside the weak individual, giving him or her a hand and encouraging them to keep on going, they end up uh, uh, continuing until they reach the finish line. And this is so much like Christianity. Or let me say it, let, let me put it another way. This is what Christianity should look like. Through Jesus Christ, God has called us out of the world and, and brought us into this family, into his family. And those who are saved by grace through faith in Christ are referred to in the Bible, as we look at the testimony of the scriptures, they are referred to as the children of God. And if we are children of God, then our relation to one another is as a family. We relate as a family. 
When you go through the epistles of the Apostle Paul and, and, and the other apostles as, as they write, you, you, you notice that they have a favorite word of endearment when, when they refer to, to fellow believers. And that word most often when you read the letters is brothers. It's, it, the, the, the word brothers is, is a generic term that means brothers and sisters. And, and they did not just say this for the sake of formalities or, or, or just out of habit. But it was, it was alive and, and true to them. When, they, when Paul wrote a letter and referred to fellow believers as brothers, he meant it. They were brothers. They were dear to him. There was, there was this bond of, of family among them. This bond between Christians is, is the strongest bond of all. The reason it is the strongest bond it is because it is not based on ethnicity. It, it is not based on nationality or, or social status, but it is based on the fact that we are redeemed by the precious blood of Christ. It is a bond that has its origins, its, its strength, its, its substance, its energy, and its life in Jesus Christ himself. We are brothers and sisters because of what Christ has done for us. I think that must amaze us. That, that, must, that must encourage us. And that must strengthen us. You see, the kind of community we are to be, to be as Christians is a gospel community. A gospel community is a community of those who are redeemed. Last week we were talking about true conversion. It's, it's, a, it's a community of those who are truly converted, truly redeemed. And it must be marked by a redeemed attitude. In this community, in this gospel community of, of those who are redeemed, there must also be a sense of a redeemed attitude. Redeemed characters, redeemed relations. My question today is, what are the characteristics of a gospel community? What are the characteristics of a gospel community? And I, I want to mention three characteristics of a gospel community. I want to mention the fact that uh, a gospel community is, uh, is characterized by one, love, by mutual encouragement, and by unity. So I want to mention these three things. Let us look at the first character, uh, characteristic of a gospel community. A gospel community is characterized by love. Look at John chapter 13. John chapter 13, verse 24 and 20, uh, uh, verse 24 and verse 34 and 35. Verse 34 and 35, John chapter 13. And, and Jesus here is speaking with his disciples, and it is before his crucifixion. He, this, this, we see this in, in, in chapter 13 to chapter 17. It is prior his, his crucifixion, and he is addressing his disciples and speaking to his disciples only um, to, 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 to the 12. And, and then he only speaks again to to the eleven because Judas left uh, them. 
He says these words. Listen to these words very carefully. And these are words that we need to take very serious and, and, and consider each and every time. Look at, look at what Jesus is saying here. He says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Jesus defines how his disciples must relate to one another. These are the ones who have committed themselves to, to following Christ. And, and it follows that if they are committed to following Christ, then they must be committed to obeying his word. So he gives them a new commandment. And it, it is very important to take note here that he is not making a suggestion. He, he is not giving an opinion. He is not opinionating here. He, he, he is giving a commandment. He says it's a commandment. In other words, what Jesus is saying here carries the weight of his authority. It, it carries the weight of authority. It is God in the flesh who is speaking to his disciples. And he's saying, I'm giving you a new commandment. He says, I give you a new commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. When we look at this commandment, the newness that Jesus is talking about is not in the command itself, but it is the, in the new kind of love that's, that Christians are to have for one another because they have, they, they, they have each experienced the love of Christ. It's, it is out of that experience, out of, the, the, out of experiencing the love of Christ, that Jesus Christ is saying, you are to love one another. And we see this in, 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 in what Jesus is saying here. He says this love that we are to ex express for, for one another must take as its example the love of Christ for us. He says we are to love one another just as he loved us. His love must be the pattern of the kind of love that we show one another. His love must be the ultimate example, the supreme example of how we are to love one another as believers. In other words, if, if it is a love like Christ uh, loves us, it must be a sacrificial love. It, it must be a selfless love. It must be a self-giving love. <laughs> it must be a gospel-inspired love. In, in the gospel, we see the greatest display of love. Where Jesus Christ, the sinless Son of God, stretches out his arms to the unlovely, inviting them to fellowship with the Father. 
Romans chapter 5 verse 8 says, God displayed in his love in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God displayed his love in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In other words, this love was not displayed because we had something that was lovely in us. Not because we were naturally lovable and God couldn't... Uh, 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 just couldn't keep his feelings to himself and he, he had to display it because we were lovely. It was not because of that. It was not because there was something attractive in us. It was only based on the fact that God himself is full of love. That is rich in mercies. And this is the love that we are to imitate. In other words, this is the love that if we have experienced, if we have experienced the love of God and, and say that we have come to know God, this is the love that we must display for one another. And Jesus Christ does not put another standard. He only puts the standard of his love for us. He says the standard by which that we must look at in, in, in terms of loving one another, is the standard of his love for us. To fail to love like Christ is an indication that one has not begun to understand the gospel. It's an indication that we don't understand the gospel. Because when we look at the gospel, we, we, we see the greatest display of God's love. So it's, it's, it's really not head knowledge that is important. It, it, that, it, it's important, but it must also be displayed in, in, in our actions. and it, it must be displayed in, in, in the way we relate with one another. It must not only stay in the mind, but it must affect the heart. It must affect the will. It must affect our actions. If it stays in the mind, we are no better than demons. Because also demons know God and, and they shudder. They believe in God. It's easy to... Uh, it's easy and, and comfortable for our sinful nature to seek out people that we think are easier to love. People that are like us that are of the same social status as us, of, of the same ethnic background, of, of the same nationality, that we think it's easy and, 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 and comfortable, right? It, 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 it feels comfortable, but Christ calls us to a love that is shaped by the gospel, a love that is radical, a love that is counter-cultural. To love, as he has loved us. Look at 1 John chapter 3, verse 16. The Bible gives us the, one of the practical ways in which this love might be displayed in our midst. 1 John chapter 3, verse 16 and following. This is what the word of God says. It said, by this we know love. This is how we know love. You, you cannot say you know love if you don't know love this way. 
He says, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and, and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. He says one of the ways this, this love for one another is displayed is, is when we see each other's needs and, and meet each other at the point of need. When, when you have uh, uh, the ability to help where you can help, this is how you display love. He says we don't love in, in, in word or in talk. Uh, we love in what? In, 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 we love in deed and in, in truth. Our actions and, 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 and truth must be displayed in, in, in the way we relate with other people when we see a need and, and there's an ability to meet that need. The Bible says, what do we do? We don't just say, I'll pray for you. Be warm and, and just, you know. Sometimes prayer does not fill a stomach. Not, not sometimes, every time. When we see a need out of love, we are to meet that need. In verses 35 of, of John chapter 13, Jesus says that our love for one another will be something that sets us apart very important to notice. He says, by this all people will know that you are my disciples. If you have love for one another. He says, love for one another is a distinctive mark that shows, that truly shows that we are his disciples. It is something that marks us out as his disciples, as we love one another. He, he does not say that people will see that we are his disciples if we speak in tongues or, or if we have prophetic powers or if we understand all mysteries and all knowledge or if we have faith to remove mountains. He does not say that is how people will see that we are his disciples. He says, no, it is when we love one another. In fact, Paul tells the Christians in Corinth that to possess all these gifts without love is nothing. It is nothing. Love is the chief virtue of the Christian faith. This something that must be displayed. Paul goes on to say in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 13, he says, So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. The greatest of these is love. Because when we are in heaven, we won't need faith, right? There won't be a need for faith. There won't be a need for hope when we are in heaven. But love abides forever. 
So a gospel community is a community that is characterized by love. Not only that, but a gospel community is also characterized by mutual encouragement. Mutual encouragement. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 9 and 10. Let us look at Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 9 and 10. Look at what, what um, King Solomon says. He says, two are better than one. Oh, this is something that I, I need to hear each and every day as I, as I am there in the months. Need to keep reminding myself that two are better than one. So he says two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they, if, 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 if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. See, in this passage... Solomon illustrates the value of community. And in the same passage, he also shows us the dilemma of living a life without community. He says to have a community is better because when life gets tough, and life surely does get tough, right? Life does get tough. There are challenges that we experience. There are, there are difficulties that we go through. Life surely does get tough. And he says if, if, if life gets tough, there, there is a, 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 a helping hand in the community. And a life that lived outside of the community is tough because one often suffers in silence. God places us in a gospel community to walk alongside other Christians. Christianity is a community project. We, we run together. We walk together. And, and while, we, while we are walking in this journey, there, there will be difficulties that we go through, trials that we will have to endure. And as we walk side by side with one another as a gospel community, we have a duty, and not only a duty, but also a pleasure uh, to mutually encourage each other when life becomes tough. God allows such things in, in our lives to, to give us opportunity to minister his word to one another, to remind each other of his promises. This is amazing. We, let me say this. If God puts us in this community to encourage one another with the word of God, to remind each other of his promises, then that means, or it means that we, we, we must spend time in the word. 
we, we, we must spend time reminding each other of the promises of God, reminding each other of who God is, reminding each other of the attributes of God. There are no spectators in a gospel community. There are, there are no outside lookers. We are all in this together. Amen. We are in this together. There's no one who can say, I'm strong and, and I don't go through anything. No one can say that. Not even a man who spent four years in seminary. We, we cannot mutually encourage each other if there's no sense of a gospel community in our midst. And this will require being involved in, in other people's lives and, 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 and getting to know people. It, it will also mean opening up ourselves and involving people in our lives. And this gives others and, and, and you an opportunity to live out the words of Romans chapter 12, verse 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. In other words, when you enter people's worlds and, and you allow them to, to enter yours, their joys become your joys. Their struggles become your struggles. Their pain, your pain. There's a strong sense of a gospel community bond that holds us together. There's a sense of family bond. A sense of closeness. A sense of entering people's worlds, involving yourself in people's worlds, getting to know people. I'm naturally a, an introvert. I, it's, it's easy for me to just lock up and, and just, just build a, a wall around me. But in, 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 in the Christian faith, I realize, and, and I've been encouraged a lot of times when I realize opening up and, and allowing people into my world, but also with some caution because, you know, so, so when you open up, you realize how much God ministers to you through other believers. And how God uses you to minister to other believers as well. This mutual encouragement shows itself again when we come alongside the weak or when we as the weak open ourselves out and, and cry out for help. In Galatians chapter 6 verse 1 to chapter 6 verse 1 and 2 Paul says this. He says, brothers, that word again, the, the word of endearment, the, the the, the, the word that they use to refer to Christians. He says, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual 
should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Paul is well aware here that our journey of sanctification as believers, on our journey, there are struggles that we go through. There are temptations that we face. There are sins that we uh, have victory over. And there are sins that sometimes have victory over us. And Paul is well aware of that. And so he says, he, he talks on the issue of those who become caught in any transgression and says that as a community we are to come alongside these ones who are caught to restore them in a spirit of gentleness. Listen to what Paul is saying. In a spirit of gentleness. The, the, in other words, the attitude of dealing with sin with the sense of those who are members of, of this community is not uh, an attitude of being judgmental, is not an attitude of aloofness. But to paraphrase the words of um, Dr. Wayne Mack, when we become aware of sin in the life of a member, we must always know that we are not immune ourselves. We, we can fall into it just as easily as anyone else. No one has done anything that we could not do but for the grace of God. If we keep this in mind, we will avoid becoming self-righteous or condescending toward those who sin. Instead, we will reach out to them in compassion just as Jesus did to us who were in sin. This does not mean tolerating sin. This does not mean we remove church discipline. It does not mean that. Church discipline is an act of love in a community. It shows that there is care. That we see that one is not walking the way they are supposed to be, to, to, to be walking. That one is not walking according to their calling. That, that, that's what the Bible says, right? It says that God has called us in holiness. Right? And when we see a fellow brother, a fellow sister in the Lord not walking according to what God has called them, we come in love as a community. We deal with that sin in gentleness. And gentleness. Church discipline is an act of love. It's, a, it's an act that, it's something that God has given the church to keep us um, um, going together, working together in holiness. And as a gospel community, we are to be encouraged by, we are to be characterized by love. We are to be characterized by mutual encouragement. And not only that, but as a gospel community, we are to be characterized by unity. We are to be characterized by unity. A strong gospel community is a united gospel community. Strength in numbers, right? <laughs> Strength in numbers. Unity in diversity. In John chapter 17, 
Jesus prays the high priestly prayer. John chapter 17. And in, 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 in verse uh, 20 to 23 of John chapter 17, he prays for the unity of his disciples. And this is what he says as he prays. He says, I do not ask, ask for these only, but for those who will believe in me through their word, that they, they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. So that the world may know that you, you, have, you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Look at how Jesus emphasizes uh, uh, unity in his prayer. He says in verse 21, that they may all be one. And in he, he, he gives as an example of this unity, as a standard of this unity, his unity with the Father. Again, he says in, in, in verse 22, uh, the, the, the last uh, uh, sentence, that they may be one even as we are one. Again, <laughs> look at verse 20, 23. He says, uh, uh, in... Uh, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. Perfectly one. We can see his desire for the unity of his disciples, those who have committed themselves to him, to working with him. And to get the impact of this prayer that Jesus prays, one need to understand the historical context in which, he, 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 in which the disciples he's praying for find themselves. I think for a minute about two of them, right? Let's take two of them that he's praying. Think about Matthew, the tax collector, and think about Simon, the zealot. And he's praying for these two people to, to be one, to be perfectly one. Let us look at it a, a bit. Start with Matthew, the tax collector. So in Hebrew... There were two names given to tax collectors. There was the, the Gabai. Uh, the Gabai was a regular tax collector. He, he collected regular dues, which consi consisted of ground, income, and poll tax. This was his work. He was called the Gabai. And there was also the Mokes. This was Matthew. That the Mokes was the most hated person by the rabbis and, and the Jewish communities. He would tax people to the last penny. If, if given the chance, he would inflict much great, greater hardship upon the poor. The Mokes worked for the Roman government, and, and he would first collect tax for the Roman government. Then he would go on to collect uh, uh, more for himself. And, and to do this, they, they would make up all kinds of taxes that were non-existent so that they could enrich themselves. Uh, they would make up all, all, all kinds of ridiculous taxes. They would tax things like how many wheels your cat has, 
They will text how many legs your donkey has, how many fish you caught on the sea. They would, they would stop you on your way and, 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 and open up letters, private letters, and read through the private letters, and they would even text that. They would text you for walking on the road. They would text you for walking on the highway. They would text you for, uh, for entering the marketplaces. Everything for them was taxable. There was nothing that they did not put tax on. And no one could fight them because uh, uh, they, 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 they came with the Roman soldiers. You could not fight them. You could not resist them. If, if you did not pay in peace, they would take it. They were hated. They were the most hated people by the Romans, by, 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 by the Jews and the rabbis. They hated them because of their greed. But most importantly, they hated them because in taxing the Jewish nation, they were in a way betraying the people of God for an unbelieving nation, for an unbelieving government. Now, that is Matthew, the Mokes. On the other hand, we have Simon the Zealot. Zealots were religious activists. They hated the Roman government and, and sought to overthrow it. The, the, the zealots encouraged people not to pay their taxes and hated tax collectors. And because of their violent tactics, historians usually refer to the zealots as the first um, terrorists. The zealots would carry a knife, a small knife, at the end of their garments. They would tie it on the end of their garments. And, and uh, as they carried these small knives, they would find themselves in a crowd. And when they see a Roman soldier, the Roman soldier would wear a, a breastplate. And this breastplate, um, you could not uh, penetrate this breastplate with, with a weapon um, in the front. But in the back, there was an opening. Where, where the breastplate came together, um, there was an opening. So they would take out that small knife and, and, and stick it in the back of the Roman soldier and disappear in the crowd and leave him to die there. They were the murderers. They were, they were killers. They, they hated the Roman government and they wanted to restore the Jewish nation with violence. They hated anyone who collaborated with the Roman government. Now here's the most amazing thing about the gospel. God in his grace saves Matthew the test collector and he saves Simon the zealot. And he brings them together as disciples. The same gospel that saves Matthew, the, the thief, is the same gospel that saves Simon, the murderer. But that's not all. That's not all. Jesus here prays this prayer that these two individuals who otherwise hated each other, who hated each other's gods, when the test collectors saw the zealot, they thought these people are trying to destroy our trade. And, and when the zealot saw the test collector, they were saying these ones are betrayers. They hated each other's gods. 
And Jesus prays for these two people to be perfectly one. He prays that their unity will be so strong that their unity will be a parable of Christ's Christ unity with the Father. Think about it for a second. That there's so much hostility and animosity out, of, out there. We, we, we came together here as a gospel community from different backgrounds. We, we came from, from different uh, ways of thinking and God has brought us together and God's desire for us is that we be perfectly one. Perfectly one. People that might otherwise hate each other without if it was not for the grace of God that brought us together. If it was not for the grace of God that worked in our hearts and, and when I see you, I see my brother, I see my sister in Christ and I want to embrace you and, and show the love of God. This is the truth about the gospel and the most amazing thing about the gospel. This is what we must pray for and what we must seek after, that what we must pursue as the church, what we must desire for, that when we come together, we must have that spirit of unity in, 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 in our midst to, to, to show that indeed the gospel has worked in our hearts. And this was Paul's desire for the church in Philippi as, as well. He, he desired that the church would be united in Christ. In Philippians chapter 4, chapter 2, verse 1, and two, verse, verse 1 to 4, let us look at what Paul says. He says, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and and one and of one mind do nothing from rivalry or or conceit but in humility count others more significant than yourselves let each of you look not only to his own interest but also to the interest of others Paul prays for this church and and exhorts this church encourages this church to be united and as we look at his words here, he shows us that there are things that hinder unity in the church. Things like rivalry, competing with one another. As I said, um, using the, the analogy of the marathon, that in, in this Christian marathon, as a gospel community, we are not running against each other, right? We are running with one another. We are not competing. The, 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 the spirit of rivalry hinders unity. And he, he says it's not only that, but it's also conceit. Conceit is having too much pride in, in your own worth and your own goodness. Seeing other people as less than you. That is conceit. He says conceit hinders unity. 
Again, self-interest. Looking only at your own interest. Looking only at, at things that interest you and not caring about others. He says, these things hinder unity. He says, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Paul is even looking at the church, and he's aware that even Christians can, can uh, uh, display these things that hinder unity. In chapter 4, he, he speaks to the issue specifically of two women in the church who were, who were, who were, who were in conflict with one another. And this is what he says to them. He says in, verse, in chapter 4, verse 2, he says, I entreat Judea and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also. He's talking to the church as well here. He's talking to the church. He says, I ask you, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of the fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Look at these women. Their names are in the book of life. They labored in the gospel with Paul. These women were serious about the things of God, but there was a point where conflict came in and they allowed it to destroy the unity. And Paul is saying to the church, I'm not urging you to take sides. I'm not taking you to take uh, Judea's side or Syntyche's side. I'm urging you to, to help these women. Come alongside these women. Help them to agree in the Lord. That is our unity. Uh, the base of our unity, the basis of our unity, the ground of our unity is the Lord. It's Christ himself. Paul is saying, as a church, there must be the spirit of togetherness when we see conflict, when we see rivalry coming together, helping, not choosing sides. A house that is divided cannot stand. Right? Cannot stand. There will be no direction. There will be no progress. There will be nowhere we're going. We'll be going around in circles. Gospel community is a community that is characterized by love. It's characterized by mutual encouragement. Characterized by unity. Amen. Our dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we do not love as we are to love. At times we find ourselves just looking to ourselves and looking at our own interests. We find ourselves, Lord, loving people because of what they can give us and because we, we like them, we, they are like us and they are of the same social status as us. We pray, O oh God, that you help us, O oh Lord, today to think about these things clearly and to think about the gospel and how it impacts our lives in, in this gospel community. Help us grow in our love for one another, our love for you, our unity, mutual encouragement, O oh God. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.